0: Hello, and welcome to How I Made It Happen, a weekly podcast hosted by me, Elizabeth Agabi. On this podcast, I speak to women who are entrepreneurs, innovators, and game changers. I dive deep into conversation with them to understand how they've taken their ideas and made them a reality. If you're new here, here's a little introduction about me I'm the founder of For Working Ladies, a platform for entrepreneurial thinking women. I'm also the author of the newly published book, Side Hustle in Progress. A practical guide to kickstarting your business. In this book, I share everything you need to know as you embark on your own journey of turning your ideas into reality. From how to get ideas to how to market your business, I cover it all. If you'd like to purchase a copy, the link is in the show notes and it can also be purchased at all bookstores. In this week's episode, I'm joined by Jessica Watch, co founder and CEO of Kimai a startup creating lab-grown diamonds. Kimaya was founded in 2018 by Jessica and her long-term friend, now co-founder Sydney Newhorse, when they were both 24. The co-founders grew up in Antwerp, the center of the diamond trade, with their family who are also diamond and jewelry traders. They both met at a Girl Scout Club in Belgium and went on to be great friends. Years later, Jessica studied business and finance at Cass Business School, and Sydney studied gemology, and later reconnected after working a few years at startups and in the jewellery industry. To get Kimai off the ground, they used their personal savings of £7,300 and kept the business lean by creating only a few pieces of jewellery they would use for samples and help to launch their website. Historically, diamonds had been mined from the ground, where they were created over centuries, But recent advances in technology mean the same effects can now be created in the lab, which results in creating better conditions for the earth and giving consumers an affordable equivalent with the same quality. At the heart of Kimai is female empowerment. In less modern times, women would usually receive jewellery as a gift from men. But today, women are independent, working women, and can afford their own pieces. But the industry is still promoting diamonds and jewelry as something that's gifted by a man to a woman. Kimai infuses empowerment into their collections as they want women to feel good and confident when wearing their pieces, which is something they struggle to see on the market themselves. In this episode, Jessica shared with me how Meghan Markle became the first celebrity to wear their jewelry and how this impacted their business the joys of having a co-founder, and the importance of keeping the business lean in the early days. Here is Jessica Watch.
1: So we started Kimai almost three years ago. Uh, The main mission behind the brand was to bring transparency uh, to a very outdated industry, that is the diamond and fine jewelry industry, an industry that hasn't really evolved with our generation, that hasn't seen any changes over the years, but has known a lot of controversies uh, from blood diamond to child labor. And we just felt that the industry wasn't talking to us anymore as customers. But at the same time, jewelry has always had such an important value to me and my co-founders since our youngest age, just because we grew up around diamonds and jewelry, growing up in Antwerp, which is the diamond center of the world. Because a piece of jewelry isn't just something you wake up a morning and purchase it. It's really something that comes with a sentimental value it's something you can carry on from one generation to another so we wanted to kind of like keep those values that we've always been excited about when getting a piece of jewelry or purchasing a piece of jewelry for ourselves but at the same time figuring out a way to make it in a better and different way which is more transparent more approachable as well because if we look at the fine jewelry industry today Today, it's evolving, but how it used to be, it's always talking to men. It's always focused on the men's purchasing power, while women today are much more independent, uh, can purchase their own pieces, and they don't need to wait for men in order to do so. So that's how the idea came about. And then basically, we started talking to different people in the industry, really trying to figure out what is the issue, why has that industry never evolved, and how can we kind of fix it? And that's how we first heard about lab-grown diamonds. So to give a very short overview, basically um, lab-grown diamonds are chemically and physically identical to mine diamonds, but without the social and environmental impact of mining. But when I say like identical, even a diamond trader or certified gemologist won't be able to tell them apart. So when we first heard about those diamonds, started doing our research, there was very little information available online. Most people never heard about those diamonds. But at the same time, being seeing the industry firsthand and being able to talk to those people in the industry really understood that those diamonds are basically the same. We're just able to reproduce the environment in a in a different yeah, in a different place, which is a lab, but you get the exact same result with a much lower impact. So we saw this as our best solution to bring the transparency we were looking for, but also that innovation side to make it more modern um, and to make it more relevant. So that's basically how we came up with Kimai. So the goal was to show that today you don't need to trade off on quality design, transparency, or pricing. So for us, it was really important. We want to be a sustainable brand. We want to do as transparent as possible, but we want to show that like, Quality is important for us. Design is important for us. So when we started, we didn't launch a collection of a thousand designs that you could find at any other jeweler. But we started with a collection of 20 designs that are unique to us, everyday pieces that you can purchase for yourself, wear with a jeans and sneaker, or where to go to a wedding. So simple with a twist and that enables you really to feel empowered. So yeah, so that's Kimai. And in terms of uh, the name, So basically, uh, Kima in Hebrew means sustainable. And we wanted something that had some uh, value to us uh, and that meant something. So that's how we chose the name. (laughs)
0: Amazing. And so just to kind of go back to what you said, the lab-grown diamonds and the mine diamonds actually look exactly the same. Um, and the quality is the same. It's just that the differences, the lab-grown diamonds don't have the social and environmental impact that the mined diamonds do. And what kind of impact do the mined diamonds bring about?
1: So firstly, in terms of quality, like mined diamonds and lab-grown diamonds all have different quality and clarity. So each diamond comes with its own imperfections. So even a mined diamond will have different qualities from one diamond to another. And it's exactly the same with lab grown diamonds. Uh, so they're graded by different labs that kind of like, uh, I don't know if you know about the four C's, uh, but that's what uh, defines the diamond itself. Um, and in terms of like negative impact of mine diamonds, uh, there's a lot, firstly, like what we've realized firsthand is like, we couldn't get any answer. We couldn't under, like even talking to diamond trader uh, directly, we couldn't know where the diamonds they were buying, where are coming from, we couldn't know how many people were involved in that supply chain, what are, what are the working environments. Plus, there's been many controversies over the year that we were aware of by looking at the news and, of course, by being in Antwerp around like child labor, around forced labor, and also the environmental impact on our planet, because today we need to dig deeper and deeper in order to get even less than one carat uh, rough diamonds. Uh, there's a lot of impact that comes from that industry.
0: Yeah. So you're actually providing such a brilliant solution in terms of cutting all of that out, but still giving people the end product, which I think is amazing. Um, So when I came across Kamai, I think it was a year ago and I was so fascinated by the concept of lab grown diamonds and I'm sure other people have been fascinated by it. What has the reception been like from people when you first launched and, you know, how did people receive it?
1: So definitely when we launched, as I said, like no, most people didn't know what those diamonds were and even less in Europe. There was some more education in the US. Uh, we were one of the first brands to launch with lab-grown diamond, or at least like being super open about the fact that we are using lab-grown diamonds. So what we've seen is more curiosity rather than like people being scared of like that those diamonds. I think like education is important. That's why like press, that's why like social and all those kinds of channels are really important to us because it's our way to have a voice and to tell the customer about what they're purchasing into but what we've seen over the last two years even more is that customers are becoming more and more conscious and in all kinds of industry uh, there has been some changes but the fine jewelry industry you, do, you can't find an alternative to mine diamond today if you want to have the exact same result so it's actually been the first year has been a lot about education uh, but we, what we've seen in the last two years has been like a uh, yeah a huge growth in uh, awareness and in interest from customers. And actually when we launched, we started with fine jewelry because we were like, okay, our role is definitely to offer beautiful jewelry, but firstly to educate customers. So it's going to be easier to do so with pieces for the everyday. And actually when COVID hit, we got a lot of demand for engagement rings, which we thought would come much later down the line because again, Educating customer with engagement ring, which is a much bigger purchase, is trickier, or at least we thought so, than doing so with the everyday jewelry. But actually, like, customers have become much more conscious and are really looking for the alternative. And so and we've launched engagement ring a year ago, and it's been, we can complain, like, it's been doing well. And uh, we're seeing more and more, yeah, more and more customer really, customers that come for engagement ring, they really come for the lab-grown aspect. Because fine jewelry, you can also come for the design, like there's a lot of add-ons. But if you make the decision to go with an engagement ring that has a labyrinth diamond, is that you're really convinced by by what it is, by the mission and want to be part of it. So we've seen, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, there's definitely different thoughts around it from diamond companies. Um, But what we've seen is that customers are looking for that change.
0: I guess you would definitely have like the really traditional people who are not used to it. But I love that you've said that you're using all the channels to first educate, because I think that's important when trying to convert people or trying to like change their perception, using things like press and social media and email, all the different channels really to kind of educate. So I really love that um, you said that. And um, I think for me, I think the biggest attraction about your brand was the conscious way that you were creating diamonds. So you came from a family of entrepreneurs and a family of diamond traders, which is why I kind of guess you got into this. Have you always aspired to be an entrepreneur and, you know, work in the diamond industry?
1: To be honest, I feel like, yeah, for both questions, but I don't think... I think like the fact that we went into lab grand diamond doesn't definitely like the why we wanted to make a change is because we've seen firsthand what has happened in the mine diamond industry but at the same time for our parents it's not like the normal route to take to go into lab grand diamond because it's kind of like a threat to the traditional diamond industry uh but yeah i'll talk for my co-founder as well but we've always been fascinated about jewelry and i think from our youngest age being able and lucky to for our birthday, like get a piece of jewelry. It always meant something so special and having something from, from our grandparents that today are, is still something that I can wear and that is still kind of like stylish because it never kind of gets out of style or it's vintage uh, was always something that we had a strong connection to. So always was inspired by uh, fine jewelry. And I think for my co-founder, Sydney, she was always around, like, she always wanted to design jewelry. I was more into the business side of things, so always wanted to start my own thing. But I think it's also, like, from a character perspective, like, to take initiative, to organize things, to figure out issues. Uh, so that's basically how we mixed both of our passion. Uh, but definitely the root of it is, like, having a passion for the industry. For the industry, I wouldn't say how it is, but, like, for for the for the jewelry itself. And the meaning and the stories behind it. We even talk to our customers at one point and often ask them, why did you purchase that piece of jewelry or what is the meaning behind it? For example, when we sold, uh, we have a bracelet where you can engrave something and always there's incredible stories that comes out of it. And that's what we really, really, really think is special.
0: I was on your website yesterday, actually, and I was looking at the rings, and I can't wait to get one. <laughs> I honestly cannot wait to get one uh, because I just think they're so amazing. I mean, I like jewelry, and um, again, for me, it's really the mission and the story behind your brand, and being able to support that, um, and you know, create a better world for me. I just love that, and plus, at the end of the day, you get brilliant jewelry. Um, so. In the past, you had shared that your dad warned you about the industry being incredibly male-dominated. How has the experience been so far in terms like, have you faced any barriers in regards to gender and even age? Because I would say compared to the average diamond trader, you are quite young. So have you seen any barriers in that
1: sense? I think... We wouldn't say we're in the diamond industry because I think like being in the diamond industry, yeah, it's heavily man-dominated and it's heavily dominated by big brands that have a lot of power and have a lot of money to pressure smaller brands. Where, where we've been lucky enough is that we are in a market where the people we are surrounded by aren't just diamond traders or diamond brands or jewelry brand, but it's really more... We've built a community of like female entrepreneurs that have companies in all kinds of different industries. And that's how we feel supported. I think that kind of issue definitely comes uh, when you get into the real diamond trading side of things where you're only talking to men uh, every day. Uh, But this is something that definitely didn't inspire us to join. And I think that gets me back to my point at first when I said, yeah, it's probably because of our upbringing that we got into jewelry, but at the same time, it's not like the diamond side that really led us to what we're doing because we really took the complete other direction that's what could have been expected from us. Um, and I think when we feel as entrepreneurs, definitely feel that we're at a disadvantage, it's really more when, like when we're fundraising, um, where you can definitely see that there's a gap Uh, And even statistics show that. But yeah, you're definitely at a disadvantage, I would say, uh, on that side of things. I think the main thing is we're also selling a product that a lot of men don't understand, kind of, even though a lot of men are diamond traders. But those that aren't, they don't like it's like selling lingerie. It's like selling beauty. It's like it's a product that meant they won't be the first uh, customers. But at the end of the day, they're the investors.
0: And we'll get into the raising funds later on, because I do have some questions about that. So I know you started out the business with um, £10,000 of your savings between you and your co-founder. So what was the very first thing you did once you had the savings?
1: We really started. So we had the idea. I did a lot of research for like six to a year. We were in a full-time job and we wanted to test out the market. Like we didn't have funding to put in. marketing and we didn't understand either at that point we weren't aware of like the fundraising kind of like uh market and industry so for us like we didn't have a product yet like we didn't feel like it was normal to go and fundraise uh but which kind of like enabled us really to hustle our way through it so the first thing the first step for us was really creating the product so as i said we launched with 20 products we're lucky enough that like we didn't have to commit to any inventory and were able just to manufacture one piece of each design in order to take pictures and in order to create a website. So those were the first step. And then we had the website and we're like, okay, that's launch day. But launch day for us was just like, okay, clicking live and asking all of our friends on Instagram to post it. And we're like, let's see what happens. Uh, it's going to be word of mouth, friends and family at first. So without having any money for marketing, our only strength at that point was really getting in touch with people, reaching out, cold emailing, uh, figuring out ways to get our pieces on different people. But again, getting our pieces on people, we could do it, but very little because jewelry is expensive. We can't just send it to 20 people and just hope for the best. Um, And actually, luckily enough, two two months after our launch, Meghan Markle was seen wearing our pieces. And that again, happens with a cold email, looking into her closed network. She was like the perfect ambassador for us because from a sustainability perspective, she supports a lot of sustainable brands. From a female founded uh, perspective, she was wearing a lot of small businesses founded by uh, women entrepreneurs. So we, she was a perfect target, but we never thought it was even possible. So we looked into her closed network, tried to figure out people that are less mediatized and connected than she is and see how we can get in touch and send a lot of cold emails. And then a few days later, uh, got an email from her PA asking uh, to purchase a few pieces, which for half a day, we thought it was a spam, <laughs> but then double checked and it happened to be true. Um, and so, yeah, so we delivered the pieces and I think one month later, um, she wore it at an official outing and it really picked up. So that was kind of like our launch.
0: And is that when the business grew because of the um, endorsement from Megan?
1: 100%. Because before that, it was honestly us two in a full-time job, really trying to get the word out there with friends and family on social, etc. I haven't spent anything on paid social, haven't done gifting, maybe two influencers that got back to us. Um, So 100% because when she wore it, press picked it up first day was the first, it was her first royal outing with the baby bum. Oh, wow. Yeah. Secondly, the design was super special. And usually she wears more traditional designs. And thirdly, it's the first time that royalty was seen wearing lab-grown diamond and lab-grown diamond at that time. And still so today was a topic that most people were like looking at it, but not sure yet what's happening with that industry. So it's really kind of triggered something.
0: And did you say that she came about um, the Diamonds through like your network and through word of mouth because you had been spreading the word?
1: No, 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 no. So we were looking into her network. Oh, right. Okay. That we, no one that we knew, like we, we didn't know anyone at that time. And just like looking on Facebook, looking on Google, how we can we find like different emails of different people that know her and just sending cold emails. And how come you chose Megan perfect ambassador I think like if you if there's one influencer that has a huge impact I think it's her and I think like how it happened it's really that we read an I think I read an article one morning talking about her and her impact on on brands in general and we're like okay let's try and all my friends were like you're losing your time focus on your business besides like sending like cold emails
0: <laughs> honestly I love the self-belief and the drive because I mean look at where it got you I mean it really did bring about growth for your business you mentioned
1: yeah I'm a strong believer of cold emails.
0: <sighs> so after the first step in raising the 10,000 pounds you then did some research started telling people built a website and then you quit your full-time job so what was the indicator that it was the right time to quit was it when you saw the growth after you know Megan endorsing your brand or what was it that gave you the signal that okay it's time for us to leave
1: So I quit my job a bit er before Sydney, Uh, a bit earlier. I quit my job in the summer and we launched in November, I think, uh, because I really, I was reading a lot about the topic and really strongly believed uh, in that mission. But it also came with like, okay, I need to leave my flat. I need to go back to my parents. (laughs) But I just didn't want to be in a job anymore that didn't motivate me as much as like my kind of like side hustle. Uh and we I I was giving myself like six months to really see how to make it work. And then of course if it doesn't work, you'll need I'll need to figure out a way to earn money. And luckily enough, like a few months later, it just picked up. Um and Sydney also quit her job a few months after, uh, because of of course seeing the impact and we needed to be full time on it in order to manage it.
0: And then shortly after Megan endorsed your brand, you then went on to win some investment, right? Can you talk about your journey of um, raising investment? Because you mentioned earlier that it was mainly around um, people not understanding the product. Um, and that's where you tend to see a bit more barriers, if anything, as opposed to the industry.
1: Yeah. So I think like fundraising in general, when you look at the press, like it seems like something that everyone does every day and it seems super easy. Uh but most people don't have any knowledge of what it really means. And we first, like, we were, were the first that didn't understand anything of what it really meant, like, fundraising. So, um, so yeah, so the first step was, like, putting a deck together and then, like, okay, we don't know any investor. How do we go about it? So what we decided is that we need to talk to people that understand the product. And the same way, like, we reached out to Megan because we knew she had some sensibility to, like, sustainability and, and women-led businesses. And with investors, we didn't want to reach out to like random investors that won't understand the product, but rather we're looking for women or sustainable entrepreneurs uh, that have already like built a company before, because we thought they were the easier way to go about it. And again, same, like sending cold emails um, and then a lot of cold emails. And I I always chase. (laughs) I don't mind chasing people. And then the main luck we had at that point, at least, is that. We had traction. It's not that we went to fundraise without with just an idea and nothing else. Like we came, we put like as you said like less than ten thousand dollars into the business and were able to make ten times that revenue. So we were able to show that like we're there is a product market fit and that we're able to do a lot with very little, which gave us some strength uh, in order to go out and fundraise. Um no, the hardest part is really who do you reach out to? How do I start? But then it's also about like when you find one person that really believes in you and want to support you, they're then gonna help you find the other investors. So that has been like our experience because it was as well like the right timing. And at first, like we weren't thinking of fundraising at that time, but most people we started talking to a lot of people just like to get some advice, and people said like it's the right time to fundraise because you have a lot of a lot to prove. So I think timing is also super, super important. And most of our investors are female investors. There is not many, but we got <laughs> we got a lot of them.
0: And did they all react positively to the concept on the first go?
1: So most of them never heard of that Lab Diamonds Diamond uh, when we first spoke to them or when we reached out. Uh, but that makes it even more exciting because like having looked at it for like six months, having done our research for six months, we really understand the impact Lab Grand Diamond has and how, and today it's still so early on, but how much it's going to grow moving forward. So like talking to people that have never heard about LabGround Diamonds and telling them about it, and then even letting them do their research for like an hour or two or a day or two, you can, if you're open-minded, because again, I always say, I'm not educating my parents who are more traditional, who have been in an industry for years, But if you're open minded, you're into technology, you understand that those diamonds are identical. And I think that's where that's the biggest switch for people when you talk to them about like the impact, et cetera. But the fact that you can't see a difference, that a diamond trader or a gemologist can't differentiate one from another is definitely a game changer.
0: And all your diamonds are handmade to order.
1: So the diamonds are not handmade to order, the jewelry is made to order. So the diamonds, we work closely with the lab in order to manufacture them in terms of how it works for us or how we were able again to like start with very little funding is that we didn't commit to inventory. So whenever someone was placing an order, we were manufacturing the pieces and purchasing the exact diamond that we needed for that piece. Today, of course, with scale, like when we know what pieces are performing well, there are some pieces that we have on hand and we can ship overnight. But in terms of like, for example, the engagement rings, that we've launched a year ago. There's a lot of customization, a lot of personalization. We work closely with the customer in order to educate them on the diamond, but also to guide them through the entire journey. And that those designs are made to order. It's made just for them. The diamonds are ordered for them. But yeah, we don't make the diamonds. The diamonds are not made to order.
0: Okay, so it's just the jewelry. And I think it's a really smart decision to have them made to order because like you said, then you don't have to have loads of inventory. But with time you'll be able to say this You know, this particular design is quite popular. So we can have this in place, ready to be made. Yeah, I think that's a really smart option.
1: Yeah, exactly. And also like we're launching new products every month and not having inventory enables us as well to really quickly kind of like adapt. Like if a product is not performing well, it's totally fine. We can take it off the website and test another product just because we don't have any stock on hand.
0: So it's literally just take a picture of a sample, showcase it. If someone wants it, they can make an order. That's really smart. Um, So you co-founded the business with your childhood friend, Sydney, who you've known for over 20 years. Why did you both decide to become co-founders and what are the benefits of co-founding a business? And later on, you can just kind of talk about what your individual roles are.
1: So basically, we've been living together since we moved to London. <laughs> so I've always been roommates. And as I said, like we shared the same passion. And I think that's how we became really close friends uh, since a young age, because we always shared the same passion for jewelry. Uh, moved to London together. She went on to study gemology and I went on to study more of the business side. And yeah, and we basically like shared interest and it just came about. And we said, OK, let's try it out. It's definitely scary to start a business with your best friend. But it's also about having good communication that enables us to talk through anything and yeah, and discuss things rather than like having issues. Because I I've heard other stories before, but we can't complain. It's been going really really well, and I think having a co-founder is so important. Because when I see people launching their business on their own, I I just don't know how they do it. I'm like honestly respect, but like I don't know how you do it because it's so tough. And being able to uh, rely on someone being able to like share thoughts, being able to ask questions or just being able to yeah, have a mental breakdown. is <laughs> so important to have someone that understands what you're going through.
0: And I know investors actually prefer for um businesses to have co founders as opposed to founders. So there's there's loads of arguments for and against.
1: Exactly. I think it doesn't have to be straight or if you It's also about finding the right person, I think. Like if you don't find the right co-founder, you can onboard someone that is senior early on and that can kind of like balance the investor kind of issue.
0: No, I agree. And so for potential business partners who are looking for co-founders, what type of qualities do you think they should be looking at in um, a respective co-founder?
1: I think it's important to complement each other and not to be uh, walking on each other's toes. So for example, Sydney is more of the creative side. So she does... She's a gemologist, she works on the design, on the production, and I'm more of the business and like PR side and marketing side of things, which means that like we really, each one of us have their specialty. And then if there's a big decision to take and if we disagree on something, we know who's gonna have kind of the veto right on that part of the business. And I think that really enables us to have no conflict on anything business related. Well, if you have two founder, two co-founders that do exactly the same and that have a hard time kind of like giving roles to each other, it makes it trickier.
0: And I think that's important as well, having defined roles. Defined role is key. Yeah. No, I totally agree. So during the pandemic, did you see any changes with your business? Was there an increase of interest? What challenges did you see or, you know, what benefits did you gain?
1: So basically, when the pandemic hit, we found ourselves in a position where we were a super organic business, where we didn't spend any money on money on marketing. And we kind of like just closed our first funding round. So when the pandemic hit, we're a luxury brand. We're not a priority because the world was basically falling apart. You had zero visibility on the future. And even us personally didn't feel comfortable pushing fine jewelry. Like there's other issues in the world, at least in the first two months. Uh, so we decided to really be on the safe side of things where we cut down all of our costs to zero and really try to focus and uh focus on our strategy, focus on our customers on our community, and be super close to them to understand what they were looking for um so it really took that time to be yeah really involved on social, talking to the customer, and it's at that time that we got a lot of demand for engagement ring, so that's really where that project kind of came to life because we didn't think we would launch it that early on so I would say like the first two months were kind of like. I wouldn't say hard because like we were lucky enough that we didn't have a team. So it's not as if we had to furlough anyone or couldn't pay anyone's salary. We were like myself, my co-founder and really like, yeah, working at home. (laughs) So really focusing on the core of the business uh, without having some, some enormous growth. But then after two, three months when like people are kind of like got used to the situation, we've definitely seen a great interest because everyone's switched to online. Most traditional jewelry brands didn't have an online store. Um, And with Christmas uh, and launch of engagement ring, people didn't even know where to purchase an engagement ring at that time. Uh, We've definitely seen uh, great growth uh, since. Uh, And also it also increased, firstly like the, um, the awareness of customers in terms of like sustainability impact and also making the customers much more comfortable to purchase those kinds of pieces online. Because like the average or the value for an engagement is quite high and people didn't used to buy it online. They were going into a store. But when the world basically stopped, you didn't have an option. And that kind of switched that industry significantly where all the fine jewelry brands now need to have an online store, which is crazy to think in 2020 that they didn't have one. But that was the case.
0: That's actually very true because, I mean, yesterday when I was on your website, like I said, and I was looking at the cost of the rings, I was like, oh, normally I wouldn't buy such an expensive item online. But I feel comfortable doing it because literally we do everything online now. Um, and talking about cost, with the rings being, or with the jewelry rather, being made in the lab, um, does that make it significantly more affordable than the average mined diamonds?
1: So, yeah, so the difference between lab-grown diamond to mine diamond is approximately 60 to 70 percent uh, cheaper. In terms of like the manufacturing, we decided to keep everything in Antwerp in order for to have the craftsmanship and the quality. So that's not where you're going to get a big price drop at all. Uh, but the fact that we're direct to customers enables us, us to have the fairest price uh, and really having super fair margins. That's why as well, like we're D2C, we don't do wholesale uh, just because we can't afford it. But yeah, definitely. The, there's a huge price up that, that you'll see much more in the engagement ring. Because engagement ring, the diamond is the biggest part of the cost. When you look at the fine jewelry collection, the manufacturing, the gold uh, makes up a big part of the cost.
0: Is retail something that you see in the future for Kimai? Is that in your future plans?
1: definitely but our own retail we think it's hard to work with wholesalers just because we're not just here to sell a nice design but we're here to sell a mission we're here to educate customer and it's hard to do it with a middleman uh but definitely think again amazing to be online and definitely our focus but having that offline experience enable us to give even more confidence to some customers that are more traditional and that aren't as comfortable purchasing from a brand uh those big amounts online
0: Yeah, I think that's really important. So I think that's going to be um, a brilliant shift for Kimai in the future. Um, And so for those who don't have a network in the industry, because, you know, I think, you know, you were really fortunate to have come from a family of diamond traders. What are the tips, I, I guess, three tips that you would give to someone who wants to come into the industry and has absolutely no network and doesn't know where to start?
1: I think definitely we were super lucky of the fact that like we knew uh, the diamond and the man, like the jewelry manufacturing industry. And that was definitely something that was kind of the easy part for us. The harder part was like, how do we build a network of investors, of entrepreneurs? Like we don't know anyone in that industry. And I think the main thing, as I said before, I'm a strong believer in uh, cold emails and also about asking a lot of questions. So I think for the manufacturing part of a product, uh, it's also about doing a lot of research online, reaching out to as many people as possible, never hesitate to follow up. And then really like talking to other brands, reaching out even to other brands that might be able to guide you, might be able to give you the right recommendation of suppliers, of people that might be able to help. So we, for example, in London, we have a group on WhatsApp with, uh, I think we're 10 or 12 D2C brands. And whenever someone has a question about, anything like today i even asked about crm or about data analysts or about pr so we just like chat in in there and then everyone kind of gives their perspectives to it and that's key so the main the main thing is like also about having building your network that's not going to bring you sales talking to other entrepreneurs but it's going to bring you knowledge it's going to bring you support and it's going to definitely help
0: i think that whatsapp group you mentioned is like a really brilliant resource which leads me to my next question that um, in terms of resources are there any books podcasts courses or anything that really helped you along the way that you'd like to recommend to our listeners
1: i think podcasts are the classic ones uh, how i built this and some french ones that are good where they interview like different entrepreneurs about their journey Uh, and how they got to where they are it's definitely much more successful entrepreneurs already that most of them have exited or uh, are already super famous and I think that's definitely super inspiring uh, to read and super inspiring to listen to then there's the book uh, zero to one which is a great starting book
0: (laughs) I think that was recommended in an interview that I did yesterday actually (laughs) so it's quite a popular one
1: yeah so Those are the classic ones if you want to start somewhere. But I think like what has taught me most is really talking to other entrepreneurs and even entrepreneurs that have already succeeded and just asking a lot of questions. Um, Yeah, just asking a lot of questions. I'm super curious.
0: And I think that's, you know, that's an amazing attitude to have. And, you know, I love that you say that you're very persistent. You love cold emailing because that's one of the things I think, people um, tend to avoid it's that fear of you know not getting a response but I just love your attitude that you are constantly following up because that's the attitude you have to have you know when you're working for yourself and um, you need to get shit done basically.
1: I think I think at first it's scary and it's so funny because I was even like talking to like someone that is on our board but that is quite famous and like it's hard to get in touch with and I'm just like Sending WhatsApp, sending WhatsApp, calling, calling, no answers. And then he calls me back one day. <laughs> I'm like, I feel so bad. I've called you so many times. He's like, I love it. You need to continue doing it. <laughs> At least it shows. For... <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how many times. It's too many times. But so far, most people, and if they don't want to talk to you, they'll say no. But if you don't have an answer, maybe they don't have time. They're busy or whatever.
0: <laughs> and how did you get um, people onto your board?
1: So mostly Investors and again network so we don't have many advisors on the board but just like a ver- like one or two uh and that has been true like at the early beginnings when we were meeting people that we were uh meeting often asking a lot of questions and really wanted to them to be um involved to introduce us to other people or just being able to reach out at any time for any question
0: brilliant i love it i love your attitude <laughs> so um, the last question is what is the future for kimai
1: So the future for Kimai, our goal and mission is really to bring an end to unethical mining environments and really to become, uh, I would say, the Tiffany of our generation to really make it more approachable and more relevant to us. And as we quickly mentioned, having some retail presence is going to be key as well.
0: Great. I'm so excited about your brand and I will be making a purchase. So can you just let our listeners know how they can purchase your brand and where they can find you online?
1: of course so the website is kimai.com uh and our instagram account is kimai k-i-m-a-i dot C-O.
0: amazing well thank you so much jessica for coming on the show your story is brilliant inspiring and one that is you know changing a whole industry so I absolutely love it
1: thank you thank you so 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 much for having me
0: that's it for this episode of how I made it happen if you have enjoyed this episode please do follow leave a review and a rating as it really helps others in discovering the podcast and lastly if you'd like to receive our weekly newsletter you can sign up for that at forworkingladies.com thank you for listening